All right. I'm going to give everybody the opportunity to have one of these pieces of paper. It's got typing on the front and on the back. And it will be useful for this evening's study. So take one, pass it around, make sure everyone gets one of those. While those are going around and we prepare for the upcoming study in our confession, I want to make sure everybody is aware or is prepared for that by having a copy of the confession. I want you to have a copy that you can hold in your hand, that you can write in, mark in, take notes in. Um, so we have back at the back, these, you've all seen them hopefully, um, these will be perfectly suitable for that if you want one. I have a box of these at home and so you're not going to take too many of them. So just to be prepared. If you want to, this is not, you don't have to, if you want to, um, Solid Ground Christian Books makes a leather-like edition. It's the same thing. This does have the uh, original letter to the readers by the authors or the, the signatories of our confession, which this does not have. Um, but we're not going to spend a lot of time in that original letter, I don't think. But if you read it, it, it will make a lot of the history stuff make more sense that we will look at next week. The point is, make sure you have a copy. I mean, there, there's one like this. Kyle has one that's a pocket size. I think it's even smaller than this, and it's red, I think. Which, I mean, it, it's really cool looking, too. There are different ways of having these. Again, this is cheap and free. So you can have one of these. They're, they work just as good. I just want to make sure everybody knows the plan is that everybody would have one at least in their possession that they can write in and take notes in. If not here, then at home. And if you order one of these, it'll probably be here in time to read through it together when we start studying. And it just looks cooler. It looks like you have something official. And so, but not, not a requirement by any means. Um, let's begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Again, like often in these studies, my goal is not to expound this verse, but simply to draw a correlation between the words of Scripture and our intentions. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, obviously, the author to the Hebrews is not making a reference to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, and and I, would, I would not dare make that connection. But, if you study the language here, this is a reference to a, a confession, a summarized, jointly held public verbal statement concerning the specifics of the Christian faith. He does not say, let us hold fast to our Bibles. They didn't have a Bible back then. 
if he would have said, let us just hold fast to the Bible, well then Roman Catholics could get along with that, Mormons could get along with that, Jehovah's Witnesses could get along with that. Many people that we would have disagreements with would say, well, we believe the Bible. He says, let us hold fast to our confession. There must be, in addition to just a copy of the Scriptures, black ink on white paper, there must be honest, heartfelt conviction about the truths contained in Scripture. And so, that's the idea here. Let us hold fast to our confession. A, a summarized, jointly held, public, verbal statement concerning the specifics of the Christian faith. So tonight our, our goal is to study the purpose of creeds and confessions. So let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll dig in. Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity to sit as a congregation with jointly held beliefs rooted in the pages of Scripture. Lord, I pray that as we walk through this, our hearts would be tethered even more tightly to the Scriptures, that we would be um, ratcheted down even deeper into the the, the firm foundation of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that we would be even less driven and tossed to and fro, that there would be a more firm foundation in your word because of what we study tonight, Lord. And, and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory, and we thank you for, for doing it. Amen. So last week, you'll remember, I, I tried to prove to you that the Bible presupposes that every generation of Christians can, should, and will receive the gifts from past generations that Christ has given to His church in order to help study and interpret and articulate the truths of Scripture. Now when I say that, I want to make sure you understand what I mean by that. Is everybody clear about what I mean when I say that we have the Scriptures, but the Scriptures, black ink on white paper, contain truths that are actually collaborations and combinations of various texts from all over. The Bible was not written to give us a systematic theology. And so we take all of the Scripture and... and cross-reference and compile and add and take away and clarify in order to come up with the specific truths taught in the Scriptures. Does that make sense? That that's different than just holding a Bible in my hand saying, I believe the Bible. What do you believe about the Bible? Well, we would say we believe what the Bible says about the Bible. A Roman Catholic would say, well, I believe what the church says about the Bible. So that's different. Um, so I was trying to prove that we, or the Bible, actually assumes that we will receive the gifts that Christ has given to His church in all of the generations past in order to help us to better understand and interpret and articulate the truths taught in Scripture. And I, I proved that with three points. Christ has promised to be with His church. Church is in all places and in all times until the end of the age. While He's with His churches, He speaks to his churches and through his churches in all ages and, or in all places and, and times until the end of the age. And in those churches he speaks 
through offices given to the church. So that means that every subsequent generation gets from the previous generations the work of originally the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers. And as that work compiles on top of each other, every generation gets more gifts. Remember that? Okay. Now the question tonight is, and I want to try to answer is, why do we need creeds and confessions? If we have a Bible, and the church of the past used the same Bible we use, and we use the same Bible they use, and, and Scripture has one interpretation or it has no interpretation, therefore ours should be theirs, why do we need creeds and confessions? Is the Bible enough to accomplish that for which it was written? Yes. The Bible is enough to accomplish that for which it was written. But the Bible itself does not provide specific cultural applications and doctrinal articulations because that's not why it was written. It was not written to do that. It is a revelation of truth. It is the job of the gifts of the church in every, in every place and time to apply those truths to their time. So the Bible wasn't written to do that, and it would, be, it would be bad on our part to assume that it was written to do that. And many people assume that it was written to do that when we say Scripture is, is inerrant and infallible and it is sufficient for all things. And somebody says, well, the Bible doesn't tell me 2 plus 2 is 4. Well, no, the Bible wasn't written to tell you 2 plus 2 is 4. That's not what we mean when we say it's infallible. We're not saying it's infallible on every subject ever imagined. It's infallible concerning what it addresses, what it talks about. The Bible is enough to do exactly that for which it was written. Does it contain all necessary information as far as our salvation and life and godliness? Yes. But does it contain specific detailed expressions of the doctrines that it contains. No, it just has men writing, filled by the Holy Spirit. They're just writing, writing history, writing poetry, writing letters. They're just writing. And then we have to come along and, and work within the pages of Scripture to compile and come up with, um, again, articulations of the doctrines. Again, that would be proven by all of the cults who say they use the Bible. Um, we come to the same scriptures that uh, a Jehovah's Witness would use. Now, what they do have their own translation that has errors in it. But for the most part, we're, we're running with a, the same format, the same scriptures. Again, they have little words that they've changed here and there. But for the most part, it's a lot of the same stuff. Now, they could say, well, we use the Bible. And we could say, we use the Bible. Well, we're, we're going in completely different directions. And so we have to take what is in the Bible, dig it out, and clarify what it actually means. And so what is the purpose of creeds and confessions? Tonight that's the question, and the answer hopefully will clarify all of that. The purpose of creeds and confessions. First, definitions. A creed is a system of Christian or other religious belief. That's a creed. A system or, or some, oftentimes a statement of Christian or other religious belief. The word credo 
means to believe or I believe. We are, a lot of people, we, we, we say, well, we're Reformed Baptists. Well, Presbyterians are Baptists. They just baptize differently than we do. We are credo Baptists. We believe you must confess belief in order to be baptized where they would baptize an infant, a credo. We're credo Baptists. And so a creed means to believe, a statement of Christian or other religious belief. A confession is a statement setting out essential religious doctrine. The word confession, con means with or together. Fateri means to admit, to speak, to say, and so we put these things together and we eventually come up with our word confess, confession. It means to say with, to say together, or as you've heard me say before, to say the same thing as. A creed, a statement of belief, a confession, a statement of belief. Both of these are statements of what is believed. Now, if you wanted to pull them apart and try to get into the intricacies of the definitions, a creed states that something is believed. The focus is that it is believed. A confession focuses on the fact that it is commonly believed, that there are more, than, there, there are more that believe this. We're believing along with somebody else. Now, again, we have to remember because the faith has been delivered once for all, that the entirety of commonly held beliefs or commonly believed truths will be found in the pages of Scripture. Everything that we believe is found here. Samuel Miller, writing on creeds and confessions, says, By a creed or confession of faith, I mean an ex exhibition in human language of those great doctrines which are believed by the framers of it to be taught in the Holy Scriptures. Many people would say, well, you got your confession, you're just adding to Scripture. What, you need more than the Bible? No. We're just taking out of the Bible what's there and clarifying it on paper. So I want to show tonight first that creeds and confessions are both biblical and historical. Again, that means that they were used in the Scriptures by the authors of Scripture, which would mean by God, and that they were continually used after the close of the canon by the churches among whom Christ walks and in and through whom Christ speaks. If the authors of Scripture used them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the church historic has used them from the, its very inception, then I think we have good warrant to believe that creeds and confessions are not only Useful, they are biblical and good. Now, to help us understand this idea of creeds and confessions, I want to give you an opening illustration, and some of you have already heard this. Imagine a straight line extending from eternity past all the way into eternity future. You've got point A and point B, and a straight line extends. It never stops, and it is perfectly straight from beginning to end. We're going to call this line God's honest truth. The scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. In other words, truth, God's honest truth, finds its source in God and is thus eternally true. It never changes. 
It is never altered, never mixed, never confused. That truth is the same. There was never a time when truth was not truth because it is rooted in the character of God. That is our presupposition. God's truth was first. And therefore, we believe Christian doctrine and Christian teaching is not reactionary. We do not believe, we don't get our confession out and say, well, we believe B because the world believes A. And we know we're not supposed to believe A because the world believes A, so we'll just believe B. No, that's not how we believe. We believe A because A is eternally rooted in God's being. He started it. We're, we, we could say our belief, our truth came first. We are on the offensive in declaring truth. Do creeds and confessions attempt to teach any new truths? No. Creeds and confessions simply exhibit in human language eternal truths in the face of competing falsehoods. Here's the picture. We've got our eternal line. It's perfectly straight from eternity past to eternity future. And throughout human history... There might be divergences from the line. Someone says, I believe God's honest truth. And then when they say what they believe, it gets off of the line. And so someone needs to come back and get them back on the line in God's honest truth. So they might say, I believe this. And that begins to veer. And someone says, no, the truth is this. And they put them back on the line. Or they, put, they, they clarify where the line is, you might say. The picture in my mind is, you see these spy movies where they pull out the spray can and they spray the, the, the laser line. You, you didn't see it before, but then they sprayed it and there you see this perfect laser line. That's sort of like a confession. They're not making a line there. They're just showing you where the line is. That's what a creed or a confession does. The truth came first. Every time there is a divergence, someone comes along to say, no, the line is over here. And they just write it out. They clarify it. So... We'll begin first with biblical creeds and confessions. Turn with me, if you will, and if you can, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have in this text what is called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Keep our illustration in our head. A straight line of truth. Clarifying the truth. The truth doesn't change. The truth doesn't go anywhere. It is always there. Always true. Eternally. Now think of the context of what is happening in Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God creates. God's people are taken into captivity. They are released from captivity. They go to the edge of the promised land. The ten spies bring back a bad report. They're made to wander in the wilderness, so they go in a big circle. They come back for Deuteronomy. Leviticus is the law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. That's why when you read Deuteronomy, if you just read Leviticus a month ago, you say, I just read this. Yes, you did. It's, the, it's Moses preaching the law. And so they've come out of Egypt. This is the first time. And God says in Exodus 20, and we'll get to Deuteronomy, Verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this is a command. In light of the idolatry of Egypt, many 
had left Egypt with gods, household gods in their bags. Idol worshippers. Some of them were Egyptians. They left Egypt. So they're, they're, they're leaving and God says, you will have no other gods before me. He commands them. Then after their wilderness wanderings, they're about to go into a land. Remember, they've been brought out of Egypt where there's all this paganism and idolatry. They've made this big circle. Now they're about to go back into a land of polytheism, the land of Canaan, where there would be many gods. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Moses preaching to them says, Here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you trace that, keep reading. Beginning in verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, now it's not a command. You will have no other gods. It is, here is your truth, Israel. There is no God. Say it. Over and over and over and over. As Israel was going into a land of polytheism, they were to remember there's only one God. And that's it. Over and over and over, the same creed, we believe in one God. And so where that, that line of eternal truth, there's, there's only ever been one God. It's not that God came along and said, okay, now I'm, now I'm the real God. No, there's only ever been one God. When in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan where there are all these false gods. It's not that now we have to change truth. God through Moses says, no, no, no. Here's the line. There's only one God. This is what we believe. Teach it. Say it. Repeat it. Over and over and over. Was Moses giving to Israel a new truth? No. He's simply clarifying in creedal form the same thing that had always been true. He's clarifying truth in the face of error. Because an error came, we've got to point out the truth again. When the primary competing falsehood for the people of God was that there are numerous gods and all should be given equal credibility, God first commanded, no, you will not give them credibility. And then before sending the people to live amongst the people of Canaan, through Moses he points back to the line of truth for all to see. Not only are they now commanded, no, you will not give them credibility, but now they are to publicly and unanimously confess, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. The first creed of the Christian faith. There's only one God. Okay, now turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Remember that the New Testament is written in a primarily or in and from a primarily Jewish perspective. Even when the apostles are writing to Gentile churches, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, when Paul writes to Corinth, he's still writing from a mind completely shaped by Old Testament truth. 
Old Testament, Israeli, Hebrew, Levitical truth. And the people of God, the Jewish people, had always confessed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That truth, there is only one God, His name is Yahweh, will never change. It's always been true. But then we come into the New Testament. Our context changes now. Now we're not going into the land of Canaan where there's polytheism. But Rome had taken over and Rome had established their own rulers. And a common title for these rulers was Lord. And ascribing that title to a Roman ruler showed that man is the supreme ruler over the nation and ultimately over your life. That man gets to tell you what to do. Also, in the context of the New Testament and the, the, the Judaism of the New Testament was the continued idea of polytheism. Rome did not care how many gods their citizens had. You could have all of the gods you wanted as long as you would be able to say one phrase, Caesar is Lord. I worship all these other gods, they, they would say, we don't mind if you worship Yahweh. We don't mind if you worship um, Diana or Artemis. We, we don't, none of that. That's fine. Put that incense on this coal, and when you sprinkle on there, you say, Caesar is Lord. You can have all of the gods you want to as long as you realize, ultimately, Caesar is your ruler, and ultimately, Caesar tells you what to do. That's the context into which Paul writes when he says in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And notice verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is not the same thing as a sinner's prayer. We like to, we, we have this idea of a sinner's prayer. And we say, well, see, it says, if you believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and, or confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Paul's writing into a context where when you did that, they were probably going to take your head off as soon as they found out. And, and I, uh, I think the movie back there on Polycarp and his life shows that, uh, a picture of that fairly well. All right, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So we've got Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Again, Rome didn't mind that there were all of these other spiritual gods that you go into your house and you worship. As long as when you walk out of your house, you will confess Caesar's Lord. Yes, Yahweh is God, but Caesar is Lord. And Paul says, no, no, no. Yahweh is God. Jesus is Lord. Have we added to our Shema, there is one God? No. Jesus is that one God. In other words, Paul is saying, there is one God, 
And He has come in one incarnate mediator, Jesus Christ, through whom He reigns over all. Now what was the goal? Again, was Paul introducing a new truth for the sake of the church? No. He's simply clarifying the same eternal truth. He's going... And he comes a little bit further. Not only is there only one God, there is only one God and His name is Jesus. One God, one Lord. We read in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul's going back to the line. That truth has always been so. Has Jesus always been Lord? Yes. That truth is eternally true from eternity past to eternity future. Now, was His name Jesus, incarnate of a woman for eternity? No. But the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always been and will always be God. The truth remained the same. Neither confession has ever been untrue. And both of these statements or, or, or creeds or confessions are statements concerning the nature of God as opposed to false gods, false truths. The second, Jesus is Lord, builds on top of there's only one God. You see, we're just adding to it, making it a little bit longer. Not only is there one God, but it must be confessed that one God is Christ Jesus. A, speaking with some of the men about this last week, I think, the only consistent Jew is one who says Jesus is Lord. There, there is no Judeo-Christian God. There is simply the Christian God whose name is Jesus who was worshipped by the believing Jews in the Old Testament under the, the, the name of Yahweh. It's the same God, same truth. As errors concerning God and His jurisdiction over the affairs of men became more specific, a more specific confession was necessary. Does that make sense? One God... You say there's many gods? No, I say there's one God. There's only one God. Oh, you say that it's fine if you have one God as long as you say there is multiple or there is that Caesar is Lord. No, there is one God and He is Lord. His name is Jesus. So you see in the Scripture they were already laying these foundations and there are other places um, that, that many guess or try to, that they, they assume were, were early confessions or creeds of the church. But there we see that as clear as day, you must believe this or you're outside of Christian truth. You're, you're off of the line. So those are the biblical creeds. Now I want to look at some of the extra biblical creeds, confessions and their purpose. And this is where your sheet of paper is going to come in handy there so that you can read along with me. Extra biblical creeds. The early church simply continued what the church had always done. In the face of specific error, they would respond by clarifying specific truth. And so we begin with the Apostles' Creed. Now the Apostles' Creed, while it is called the Apostles' Creed, was not really written by the Apostles. Uh, in its present form, it wasn't even recognized until the 8th century, sometime in the 700s. But... Pieces of it are found in literature dating a lot earlier. And so people just, uh, it's been sort of assumed that this was a summary of the Apostles' Doctrine. And they put it together and they produced the Apostles' Creed, 
And this focuses primarily on the work, the person and work of Christ. Now, I want us to read this together. It is uh, more common than not that a Reformed church would, would confess this together every worship service. Uh, some do it only when they take the Lord's Supper. But for the most part, uh, several of these creeds are confessed in every service. So let's read this together. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And thence, from thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, in case you're weirded out, number one, He descended into hell, literally, Originally, Hades, he died. Now, there's, there's argumentation as to, first, whether this was even in the original, and second, what it means. We do not believe Jesus went and suffered in hell for three days. He suffered under the hell of God's wrath on the cross. We'll take that. He descended into the grave for three days. Hades, death. We'll take that. Um, but no, he did not suffer in hell, as some would say. Um, in the ninth line there, Holy Catholic Church, notice that's a small c. Now, it just means universal. We believe that there is one universal church. There's not more than one church. Again, it does not say one holy Roman Catholic church. That doesn't even make any sense. If something is from Rome, it cannot be universal. If something is universal, it cannot be in Rome. It's everywhere. Now, notice the focal point of this creed. There are 12 lines, as we have it listed here. Lines 2 through 7, that's half of the creed, concerns the person and work of Christ. Again, if tradition serves us correctly, and this creed does extend back to the time of the apostles or their contemporaries, it proves that the church of those days continued in the same vein as the apostle Paul. The Shema says there is only one God. Paul in Romans says, Jesus is Lord. He is that God. And then here we find out what exactly that one God did in His incarnation. A focus on the person and work of Christ. So that's the Apostles' Creed. Again, they're not coming up with anything new. They're just spraying that line a little further and clarifying what was already true, what has always been true. The second creed is the Nicene and or slashy Constantinopolitan Creed of 325 and 381 A.D. This is, well, I'll explain. This is going to be helpful for next week too. As early as the 4th century, that would be the 300s. You say 4th, 300s, 5th century, 400s, 6th century. It's always a number backwards. It took me a while to catch that too. As early as the 4th century, that would be the 300s A.D., there was already developing this idea of a state church. 
In other words, the, the governing authorities and the church were, were in cahoots together. And so a faction in the church meant a faction in the, the society, the government, if you will. Political factions, church disagreements, or political disagreements. And so therefore, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. to settle a debate over the deity of Christ. Because if the church is all in debate over the deity of Christ, then, this, then the political realm is also in this debate. And so he says, let's get together, let's clear up. Was Jesus God or was He a God-like figure? Now, it's interesting in this debate, I'm going to if you want to write these letters down. This is a debate over homoousios versus homoousios. Now let me spell this for you. H-O-M-O-O-S-I-O-S. That's one word. Homoousios. Versus H-O-M-O-I-O-S-I-O-S. Homoousios versus homoi. The first one, homoousios, means same substance. Homoousios means similar substance. And I, I forget who I was listening to said, in the Greek there's one letter, an iota. Some would say an iota. You probably heard somebody say it doesn't make an iota worth of difference. Here, Christian doctrine bends, hinges on an iota. The use of this letter, the, the, the iota, the I in English. Is Christ the same substance with the Father? Or is He a similar substance with the Father? And the Nicene Creed was formulated in 325 and then added to in 381 to clarify this truth. Was this not the same? Was this not the Arian controversy? This is the same when this was going on? Or oh, I mean, the Nicene Creed was around that or was that later? So here, so, so the idea was this man named Arius, they could read him every scripture from the Bible and they would say, and he would say, I believe that. I believe that. I believe that. Yes, I believe that. That's true. Yep, you, yep, that's it. That's it. They couldn't, they couldn't nail down his error. And if I'm not mistaken, it was, it was this creed, maybe the other one, you guys can correct me and talk out loud if you want to. Um, they had to write it out detailed, specifically. And once he read it, he said, nah, I can't get on board with that. And that differed between orthodoxy and heresy. One, one letter. They, but they had to write it out because the Scriptures he would agree with. But what did the Scriptures actually teach? He couldn't get on board with it. So let me read this one. This one, they get a little longer, and I'll just read this one to you. And I've seen Creed. And notice how similar it is to the Apostles' Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. And notice their language. The only begotten Son of God. That's biblical language. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. That's biblical language. But here's where it comes in. And here's where they pierced the falsehood. God, or, yeah, God of God, or, yeah, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. 
being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were created, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the wicked and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. This part was added at 381, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Did these councils find anything new in the scriptures that wasn't already there? No. They're just clarifying what was there. Does this creed state anything that had not been true from the foundation of the world? No. Does this creed introduce anything into the, the Scripture that wasn't there? No. They're simply getting back to the line. Spraying out a little bit further. Here's the line. There is one God. His name is Jesus. He is of one substance with the Father. He is God. And then the third creed, the Chalcedonian Statement of 451 A.D. Here we're in the 500s. And I'm going to read this. You'll see next week that history is not my strong point as far as conveying information. And so if I can copy and paste what someone else has said and read it in a way that is somewhat uh, attention-grabbing and can carry you through it, I would rather do that than try to come up with this on my own. The Chalcedonian Creed was adopted at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 in Asia Minor as a response to certain heretical views concerning the nature of Christ. Again, we're still arguing about Christ. And the creed maintained two distinct natures of Christ, both divine and human. This was over against a heresy called Eutychianism, also known as monophysitism from monos, single, and physis, nature, which confused both Christ's true humanity and His true deity. In other words, they were saying He doesn't have two natures. It's sort of a blurred mixture of, of God-man. He's not fully God. He's not fully man. It's sort of a, a blur. And so they have to come together and they have to say, is this on the line or is this off of the line? And so let me read to you the Chalcedonian statement. 451, therefore, notice this language, following the Holy Fathers. In other words, therefore, getting back to the line like we've always believed, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father, as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us, as regards His manhood. Like us, in all respects, apart from sin, 
as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin, or of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of Him. And our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. What's their goal? They just want to confess orthodoxy. They just want to say, look, we're going back to what has always been taught. The prophets taught it. Our fathers taught it. Our creed taught it. One man, one person, two natures. Fully God, fully man. Not mixed, not blurred, not confused, but in one person. Now, did they find something new in the Bible that wasn't there before? No. Did they add something to God's honest truth? Did they add to the line at any point? No. Did they add to the compendium of articulated doctrine? Yes. They, they pulled out something and, and clarified, here's the line, you see. And then we come to the Athanasian Creed, 500 A.D. We're in the 6th century now. Again, I'm reading. The content of the Athanasian Creed stresses the affirmation of the Trinity in which all members of the Godhead are considered uncreated and co-eternal and of the same substance. What are we dealing with again? The personhood of God. What is, what is God? Who is God? Where is God? What does He do? What is He like? In the affirmation of the Trinity and the, du the dual nature of Christ is given central importance. Just like in the creed prior to it. The dual nature of Christ is given central importance. But here, notice at the same time the church battled with the monophysite heresy, she also fought against the opposite view of Nestorianism, which sought not so much to blur or mix the two natures, but to separate them, coming to the conclusion that Jesus had two natures and was therefore two persons, one human and one divine. The Athanasian standards examined the incarnation of Jesus and affirmed that in the mystery of the Incarnation, the divine nature did not mutate or change into a human nature, but rather the immutable divine nature took upon itself a human nature. That is, in the Incarnation, there was an assumption by the divine nature of a human nature and not the mutation of the divine nature into a human nature. So... He's one person with two natures, not two persons with two natures. And I'll read this creed to you also. This one's, again, even longer. Notice they're getting longer and longer and longer because they have to be more and more specific. They can't take out any truths, but they can articulate them better, and so they get longer and longer and longer. So follow with me. And this one's, this one's really good. Whosoever will be saved... 
Before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this. Here's what we believe. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet they are not three gods, but one God, just like in the Shema. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion, again, by the universal church. We're forbidden by what the church has always taught to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of His mother, born into the world. Perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching His Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching His manhood. We although. We, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two but one Christ. See, they've, they've inserted it in there from the, um, the previous creed. Line 35. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the death. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father God Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies, and shall give account for their own works." And they, have, and they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, 
He cannot be saved. Did they add anything to Scripture? Nope. They're just clarifying what the Scripture's already taught. As an aside, I think it would be interesting if you read the final lines of these, these creeds with regard to the return of Christ, and some of you might have seen what I posted on Facebook the other day, just try to guess what was the eschatology of the early church and all these creeds. None of them say, and we believe Jesus will come back. And he'll hang out, and then he'll go back to heaven for a little bit, and then he'll come back again and establish a kingdom, and then he's going to go back to heaven and then come back again. None of them say that. He says he's going to come, he's going to judge. All of them, across the board. Another illustration, and this is for the ladies. If you take your hair, and you hold your hair up, and you back comb it, what's that called? You're teasing your hair. And if you do that all around, is your hair going to be smaller or bigger than it was when it started? It's going to be a lot bigger. Is there any more hair on your head than there was when you started? There might be less. <laughs> but there's not going to be any more. That's what's happening here. They're not adding doctrine. They're just teasing it out. Getting every, every, getting every hair and scraping it and curling it out and, and, and whatever happens there to make it bigger. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're not adding hair. They're not taking away hair. They're just making it bigger. And so we not only see the idea of creeds or statements of faith used in the Scripture, but we see this pattern reflected throughout the earliest centuries of the Christian church. It is obvious that our forebears believed that it was their job to uphold, clarify, and defend sound doctrine. In other words, they believed it was their job to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And blood was shed over this stuff. People were cast out. Fights were started. Um, again, you've, you've got not just, it's not just churches arguing. This is, it's political at this point. And so nations are raging over these things. They didn't add anything to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They didn't take anything away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the same truth stated in Deuteronomy 6 and Romans 10 is simply teased out every time. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Is that clear? Are there any questions with regard to any of those at all? Okay, let me give you uh, five purposes of having a confession very quickly. Five purposes. First, confessions preserve unity. They preserve unity. Confessions serve to clarify and codify doctrine in order to unify the members of a particular church. To be a member here, you must read the confession and at least vocalize if you have any difference of opinion or you disagree. And so when someone comes into this building, we can say, this is what we believe. And they can read it. And they, can, they, can, they, they know every individual person has read this. And as far as their mind can comprehend it, they say, that sounds like what I believe. I, I agree with that. So it preserves the unity of local churches. Uh, number two, confessions proclaim truth. They proclaim truth. They help the church do its job as a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is not called to be the cupboard and closet of the truth. We're to be the pillar and buttress. Hold it up. Get it out there. Truth and sound doctrine should not be hidden. It should be marked out, clarified, displayed, taught, proven, shown to everyone. And so we can take this, as some of you have, and hand it out to people. Here's a, here's a 
systematic theology of Christian doctrine. Here's, this is enough. This is all you need. Now, uh, as far as understanding the most important things taught in Scripture, of course they need the, all of the Scriptures. But that's a way that we proclaim the truth. Here's what we believe. Thirdly, confessions provide clarity. They provide clarity. Preserve unity, proclaim truth, provide clarity. A confession gives a particular church the opportunity to be open and honest about their commonly held beliefs to the world and other churches. The only thing worse than a church that is unclear on their doctrine is a church that tries to be deceptive about their doctrine to others. We can walk in and we can say, this is what we believe. Unashamedly, read it, take it for what it's worth. If you want to argue from the Scriptures, we can do that. But it helps us to provide clarity so that when people come in, they know this is what they believe. And we will, we, we're open about that. Hiding and concealing and being deceptive is, is not godly. It's not right. And um, that is different. And our confession even says, when we talk about hard doctrines like predestination, election, our confession even says that these doctrines should be handled in a, in a, in a manner that is gentle because they're, they're, they are completely contrary to human nature. But it doesn't say hide them. It doesn't say, well, wait, wait till they're around for a while and then break it to them. After you get them to sign the church covenant, break it to them. You know, ha ha, you're a Calvinist now. No, that's not how it works. You're open and honest about what you believe. So they help us to provide clarity. Number four, confessions promote doctrine. They promote doctrine. Contrary to the spirit of the age, when everyone says, oh, we don't need all that doctrine. We just need Christ. What was that? Christ? Who? Mediator between God and man, prophet, priest, and king. God and man, born of a... I mean, what, what do you mean, Christ? You've got to clarify what you mean. And so they promote doctrine. And a good confession will exemplify through its articles the importance of the study of truth and doctrine. When you begin to read through this, you realize the Bible is more than God's love letter to me. It's doctrine. It's thick. It's heavy. It's deep. It's hard. It, you have to wrestle with it. The Scriptures, the authors of the Scriptures were theologians, teachers, prophets, pastors, and they were conveying the truth of God concerning man and Christ and salvation. It's doctrine. And when you read this, you realize, and hopefully if people were to come in here, they would say, well, they're, they're into their doctrine. Yeah, we are, because we believe the Bible. We don't hold that over any other truth like evangelism, hopefully. But the Bible is a doctrinal book, and we should love it and know our doctrine. And so it, it shows, it promotes the, the idea, the concept of doctrine or theology. Um, I heard a pastor one time say in a church planters meeting, I never preach theology at my church. What does that mean? You don't preach about God at your church? What do you say? Hey, good morning. Let's all bow our head and close our eyes. If you're not talking about God, what are you talking about? We, we believe in doctrine and theology and knowing it because the Bible is a theological book about God. Um, Preserve unity, proclaim truth, provide clarity, promote doctrine. And the fifth one, confessions, confessions prevent error. Confessions have preserved the church from error in all ages and will continue to do so. I would add, in as much as they are biblical. Our own confession and the other early church creeds help establish guardrails of the faith. And perhaps some of you have seen that picture that's going around. 
Christian truth. And there, there are creeds and confessions on both sides. And there are straight arrows going straight up it. And then you've got over here, Christian truth with no creeds or confessions. No creed but Christ. There are no guardrail, guardrails. And the arrows are just going everywhere. They help us. They work as guardrails. Now within those guardrails, like in our confessions, a confession, that's big, okay? So these guardrails here, they're, they're, they're real far apart. So there might be some room to move around within these guardrails without going off into heresy. When you get to the creeds, those ecumenical creeds of the early church, they're a lot more narrow. You don't bounce around much. There's no room to move around. But we can say that somebody who holds to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the, um, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith or some other confession, as long as it stems from and builds upon the, the ancient creeds and confessions, we can say we're brothers. As long as you believe the truths of Scripture, we're brothers. There's room to move around. And that's again why we, we don't believe, well, if you don't have this on the table when you walk in your church door and you're not in church. And nobody should be going there. Everybody needs to leave and come to our church. We don't believe that. I don't believe that. Creeds and confessions, again, creeds not so much. Creeds point out orthodoxy. You have to believe what they say. Um, you might could differ on what happens when Christ returns there at the end of those creeds, but you can't say, well, he's not going to return. But confessions, if you wanted, to, again, to draw a distinction between creeds and confessions, creeds are Catholic universal. Confessions we could look at as more denominational I can be a Baptist and hold to a confession that a Presbyterian wouldn't hold to, but we're still a part of the same universal Catholic faith. We're still Christians. So it is our duty to study truth, know truth, teach truth, proclaim truth, defend truth, and combat and destroy errors and lofty opinions raised against the truth. That's what the confessions do. They help us do just that. Let me close with this quote. And I, don't have, I don't remember who, where I got it. But it's talking about the writers, those who come up with these creeds. It says, quote, They have no idea that in forming this summary they make anything, that, anything truth that was not truth before, or that they thereby, thereby contract an obligation to believe what they were not bound by the authority of Christ to believe before. But they simply consider it as a list of the leading truths which the Bible teaches, which of course all men ought to believe because the Bible does teach them, and which a certain portion of the visible church Catholic agree in considering as a formula by means of which they may know and understand one another. In other words, they're just clarifying the line. So if you tell somebody, we believe, or I believe, this is not in our confession or in your scripture, I believe if you, are a, if you want to claim the title Reformed, you hold to one of the Reformed confessions of faith. Now people would say, well, I mean, I, I kind of believe this doctrine and this doctrine, but I don't need those confessions. I got my Bible. Now we know. Well, that's, those are not mutually exclusive things. The confession helps us understand our Bible. It's just teaching from the Scriptures. They're just clarifying the line. So, let's close in prayer. Father, I do pray that we become a people who love truth and we are excited about truth and that we delight in the truth and that we want to know it and we want to teach it, Lord. Even those of us who would, would never dare stand in front of other people to teach the truth, but we, we desire to, 
teach our wives or teach our children or teach our co-workers or teach our family members. Lord, we have to know the truth if we are to put the truth out before others. So I pray that you'd help us again to, to love the truth. Again, I do hope that our roots in the soil of truth have grown just a little bit deeper and stronger from this. That we realize that we're not strange or weird or odd because we have a confession, but we're simply making sure anyone who wants to know knows that we believe what the Scriptures teach and what your church has always believed. So help us, Lord, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. I pray that Covenant Bible Church would be a pillar and buttress of the truth. That when we get to glory, you could say, well done. You were a pillar and buttress of the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.